0: The author of Hebrews in chapter seven outlined the supremacy of Jesus. And told us that he is the greatest high priest that has ever lived. Now he did it in a really clever way. And he's been doing this all the way since chapter one. He's appealing to the Old Testament. He's making arguments based off of things that his audience, which is a Jewish audience, is familiar with. And in order to make the argument that Jesus is the supreme high priest, the greatest high priest that's ever lived, he appeals to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. This is just a quick summary to catch you up for where we are today because he begins in eight on the heels of seven. So he appeals in Genesis 14 to this, this moment where Abraham meets this Melchizedek character who we are told is a priest and a king in this town called Salem. And we're told that Abraham affirms that this guy as priest of the Most High is a supreme priest. And we're told that since Abraham's descendants included the 12 tribes and Levi who would become the priests, since Levi was inside of Abraham as a seed when Abraham affirmed that Melchizedek is a supreme priesthood, in a way, Levi also affirmed that Melchizedek and that priestly order is superior to the Levitical priestly order. And not only superior, superior in the sense that the the Levitical priests affirm that he is superior, superior in the way that he is. This Melchizedek priestly order is a priestly order that exists forever because then the author appeals to Psalm 110. And he goes to David and David says, this priesthood that we are all familiar with, this Melchizedek priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood, this priesthood that Abraham affirmed is superior than the Levitical priesthood. This is the priesthood that our Messiah is gonna come through, and God says that he is going to be a priest through this order forever. Now the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making is, is profound. He's saying that the Levitical priesthood, the entire law structure, the temple, there is something superior to that, and that thing that it's superior to, that's the priesthood Jesus has come through And that priesthood doesn't need any replacing like the Levitical priesthood because Jesus will reign and rule forever. But he doesn't end with that. The argument at the end of seven starts to call into question the entire law of Moses. Because the Levitical priesthood was established in order to facilitate the law. They're the ones that the law says you have to do this, you have to bring this sacrifice, and who do you bring the sacrifice to? You bring it to the Levitical priesthood and the priests, function as the ones who steward the law. Therefore, if the Levitical priesthood is inferior to another priesthood, the law is then also inferior to something else that's coming down the line. This is the argument in Hebrews chapter seven, that the priesthood was inferior, the law is also inferior. Now this, just a side note, Hebrews chapter seven is a masterclass in biblical theology. If you wanna learn how systematic theology works, and what I mean by that is taking the Bible as a whole, taking this concept and then then this concept, and then this all concept, and, and seeing how God is telling his story in these different places, and it's all saying the same thing, and we can build a theology based off of all of these different areas where God is saying this over here, and this over here, and he said this to Jeremiah, and he said this to Abraham, and he said this to David. Well, what is he saying if he's saying all these different characters over a thousand year period? Well, he's saying the same thing. Well, how do you know what he's saying if I can't just go to the same place? If I just go to one place and just read all of it in order, that's not how it works. He's saying all these things through different people. And so Hebrews 7 is like a master class in this. If you want to learn how God says or what God says about any specific area, and you want to learn how to like go through the word of God and says, oh, it says this about creation over here and it says this uh, uh, about uh, renewal over here. Hebrews 7 is a great place to start. The author is a master at showing us how the Old Testament spoke of the new covenant and how many people missed it, but not everybody missed it. Some of the prophets got it. We're going to see one of those prophets today, Jeremiah in chapter 31. So, <clears throat> In seven chapters so far, the author of Hebrews has exalted Jesus over everything. He's exalted him over Moses, over angels, over Abraham, over Joshua, over Aaron, over the Levites, and now at the end of seven, over the law. And his goal is not to just take everything that this church grew up with and just say, all right, now it's time to just say goodbye to it. He's taking all of this stuff, he's lining it up and he's saying, I want, do you see all this stuff? All the stuff that you value highly, all these, these prophets, all of these words, all, the, all of this. All the stuff that you think very highly of, I want you to see how Jesus is superior to all of it. But not only that, I want you to see how all of it spoke of him. He's not just better than it, all of it speaks of him. It affirms him. And therefore, the author of Hebrews' argument is not to just toss or debunk everything that this church was familiar with. It's to stir their hearts in worship for Jesus. That's why we're reading the book of Hebrews, so that you can learn how to exalt Christ above everything because he is superior. I don't care what you have in your life that you hold in high regard. Christ holds more authority, power, and value than that thing. And I'm talking even the good stuff. Obviously, he's superior to the bad stuff. But Hebrews is inviting us to consider that he is superior to the good stuff. He's better than your marriage on its best day. He's better than obedient kids on their best day. He's better than the day you walked into your job and you got a raise and a better office with a window view. He's better than Christmas morning. He's better than your retirement you're looking forward to. He's better than everything. Therefore, don't put anything higher than him. That's the argument of Hebrews. Now, with that in mind, let's pick up Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> so the author in Hebrews 8.1 summarizes everything in 7 that I just said with a very simple line, which is great for us because that's a, it's an invitation for us to start considering how to do that in our own lives. If you read a chapter or a text of scripture, practice summarizing it. What is the author saying? What did I just read? Can I summarize what I read in one sentence? Well, the author does that for us in 8.1. He says, now the point and what we are saying is this. Oh, thank you. That is wonderful. It doesn't get any better than that. The point and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven we have the best high priest who has ever lived and now we're about to start understanding why he's the greatest high priest not just because he ever he never has to be replaced but because of where he actually ministers as high priest verse 2 he is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not man for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer now if he Jesus were on earth he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law There's already a temple in Jerusalem right now, and there's already priests at that temple who have their bloodline tied to the Levites all the way back to Aaron, and they're currently offering gifts and sacrifices at the earthly temple. That's how we know this book was written before 70 AD because Rome hadn't destroyed it yet. But if Jesus was on earth, he wouldn't be a high priest at all because he's not in that order ministering at that temple. He's in heaven ministering, offering gifts and sacrifices in a different temple. And it goes even further, verse 5, they, the Levites, who are ministering at the current temple in Jerusalem are serving a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern of, that was shown you on the mountain. Now pause right there. So the author summarizes the entire chapter seven in one verse, in verse one, and then proceeds to blow our minds. He begins by saying that we have a high priest who meets all of the qualifications as priest, the greater priesthood through Melchizedek, but he isn't an earthly priest. He is a heavenly priest that serves the real temple. Now that in and of itself, that doesn't seem very disconcerting. Okay, all right. If we're going to say Jesus is supreme, surely he serves at some supreme temple. But how dare you tell me that the temple that I have gone to my entire life is not a real temple. It's a shadow of something. See, what the author is doing here is making a very bold argument. As humans, we are convinced that the real stuff is the stuff we can touch, smell, see, put our hands around. That's what's real. And the stuff that isn't real is the stuff you can't really see or get our hands around. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, it's, it's flipped. It's, that's opposite. That the real thing is the thing you can't see. And the stuff you can see and touch, it's simply pointing to something else. All of this, this temple structure, it's nothing more than a shadow pointing to something real. Now the author is making some pretty inflammatory claims. So he appeals to Moses for this argument. He says, look, I, I'm not the first one to kind of come up with this. I'm, I'm not just throwing this or pulling out of, of midair. Moses, knew that the tabernacle was nothing more than a type and a shadow. And so he quotes Exodus 25, 8, 9, where God tells Moses, I want you to make everything according to the pattern I show you. See, if the earthly tabernacle was the real thing, then it wouldn't have been based off of a pattern. The pattern implies that there is a real thing somewhere else. And what we're building is simply a shadow or a copy or a model of that real thing. And what the author of Hebrews is arguing is that God, Christ, is now in heaven serving at this real temple. And the earthly temple, all of the furniture that goes with it, is nothing more than a copy. Which is big. It may not necessarily be big to us because we didn't see the tabernacle. We didn't see Solomon's temple. We didn't see the second temple that Herod added on to. We didn't see the furniture. But this entire temple structure was what the Jewish life revolved around. Every way you ate, every way you dressed, what you did in your homes, the festivals that you celebrated, the way that you covered and atoned for your sins, the way that your sacrifice, where your money goes, everything revolves around this temple structure. And the author of Hebrews is telling us it was never more than a shadow. Now let's think for a moment about shadows. I'm standing up here on stage and I can see that the light is causing a shadow onto the floor from my table. So what I see is this big rectangle here. This is the shadow of the table. The reason why I see this shadow is because there is a real table casting the shadow. So I could spend my entire life trying to put my books on this shadow or I can look to the thing that's casting the shadow and use that. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the tabernacle, the Levitical priesthood, all the furniture in it was a shadow in two ways. One, it was a shadow because there was a real thing in heaven that the light of God was casting the shadow down to earth, the temple on earth, the tabernacle on earth was a temple because it was a real one in heaven casting that shadow and it was also a shadow of a new covenant that would take place sometime in the future that's casting its shadow backwards in history. Now, he's going to make both of these arguments. He's going he's to make the argument about the greater temple in heaven casting the shadow down to earth more in the next chapter but I want to touch on it briefly. But he's about to go into how a new covenant, cast the shadow backwards. So that's what we have. We have this temple structure. Now, if you're not familiar with the tabernacle and the temple, I wanna help you a little bit. So imagine you're an Israelite. You've been in bondage for 200 years or so. You're in Egypt and all of a sudden, everything starts looking real weird. The the Nile is turning into blood. There's gnats everywhere. There's frogs everywhere. God's up to something. You're hearing whispers that he's going to set you free, that there's this showdown between the, the prophets of the Egyptian king and God, and it's getting real nasty, and then all of a sudden it comes this last night where you're told to put your shoes on, pack your bags, slaughter an animal, smear its blood on your doorpost, lock your door, and eat dinner, and don't come out until the Lord says. And that night, while you're having dinner, you start hearing screams throughout Egypt because the firstborn of everything in Egypt is killed. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And the news is, it's time to go. And as you're leaving, Egyptians are just throwing gold into your hands. And it's the middle of the night, and you are headed out into the desert. You don't know where you're going. And all of a sudden, you, after a couple of days of traveling, you get on the shore of this this ocean and you're in the middle of nowhere and there's mountains on one side and all of a sudden you hear the roar of chariots and you look and these guys who just set you free are now coming to enslave you again. You thought you were free, but man, and then all of a sudden Moses walks out and, and before you know it, the, the sea is split and you're like, what is going on? And you're like, all right, come on, grandma, it's time to cross. And two million Israelites cross the Red Sea with the ocean split in the middle. And as soon as they get on the other side, they all turn around. And the Egyptian army is in the middle of this dry ocean ground. And the ocean just swallows them up. And you watch your enemy defeated right in front of you. You eventually make it to Sinai. And Moses stands before the people and says, God's going to cut a covenant with us. And in the middle of that covenant-cutting process, God gives a law to the people. You're my people now, and here's how I want you to act. Here's how I want you to approach me. I want you to build a tabernacle, a mobile place of worship for me while you're out in the wilderness. I want to show you a diagram of that. If you'll put up the first slide. What you're looking at is a reproduction of the tabernacle of Moses. This is what God told Moses to build and all of the people gathered, rallied their supplies and they built it. So what you're looking at here is an outer court. That's what this is. Outer court, this is kind of outside fence. There is an inner area here that's not covered. And then there's a tent structure here. Now what I want to do, now that you kind of have a visualization of the tabernacle, I want you to start understanding that the tabernacle wasn't just this place of worship. There were pieces of furniture in the tabernacle that were reflections of the worship. The first piece of furniture was... Uh, within the outer court. So this is the doors you walk in, you come in, the first thing you come to is a brazen altar. This is the place where the sacrifices are made. They're cut over here on these little uh, uh, chopping blocks and then the sacrifice is placed right here and it's consumed and burned it 's a very bloody, bloody process, so the next thing that happens is the priests move over to the second piece of furniture it 's this gigantic water basin called the brazen laver, and this is where the prof, or this is where the, uh, uh, the ceremonial cleansing would take place so there 's a sacrifice and there 's a place where the where the priests wash up and then there 's there's cleanliness happen now, what I want to do next is this temple, excuse me, this uh, tent right here, we're going to pull this roof off and we're going to zoom into this area. And the next slide, if you go to the next one, now you're doing looking at a cross section into what that tent was. The tent was split into two rooms. The first was called the holy place and the back room was called the holy of holies. And it was separated by this curtain. Inside the holy place was three pieces of furniture. First was the table of showbread. The priests were instructed to make bread, fresh bread every day, always have it set there because the bread was a symbol of God's presence. Next was the lampstand. It was there were uh, seven lamps at the top. You have the one that shoots straight up in the middle and you have three coming on this side and three coming on this side. This is the only light in this room. You had a third piece of furniture, it was called the altar of incense. This is where they would burn incense and the smoke would fill the room. It would would be beautiful, it would smell good. And then right in front, or I guess right behind the altar was this curtain leading into this area called the Holy of Holies, and this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was a box symbolizing God's presence. There were these creatures carved onto the top of it, it was to symbolize God's presence. And all of this, go back one slide for me. This entire structure and everything inside here the author of Hebrews is telling us was nothing more than a shadow that pointed up to something else. Now this is what's fascinating. Last fall, we walked through Revelation. And John tells us that when he comes into the throne room of God, he sees some pretty fascinating things. He sees the lamb that was slain. What's the first thing? We, we go back to the first slide for me. What's the first thing that we see? This right here, the brazen altar where the lamb The lambs were slain. And then we're told in Revelation 4, 6, that when John beholds the throne, right in front of the throne is the sea of glass. This brazen laver was also referred to as the sea. It's the place where the sins of the people are washed away. We're told that as John is beholding the presence of God, he sees seven spirits of God. Revelation 4:5. Makes you think of the candlestick. We're told in Revelation 7:15 that God's presence is in the tabernacle or the temple or the throne room of God. The bread of his presence. See, in heaven, you don't need bread because you've got his literal presence. The bread of his presence was symbolizing something else. And so as you walk through this, you see these things that Moses was given a pattern of that reflect the real thing in heaven. In heaven, there's a lamb that was slaughtered. In heaven, there's a sea. In heaven, there's the seven spirits of God, just like the candlestick. In heaven, there's the bread of the presence, just like the table of showbread. Do you remember in Revelation 5, 8, there is an altar in front of the throne and this incense is flowing up from it and we're told that it's the prayer of the saints. And we're told that when God, when, when John beholds the throne room of God right in the middle of it, Revelation 4.2, he sees the ancient of days seated on the throne. So you don't need an ark symbolizing the presence of God when you've got God in the midst of his people. But what's fascinating is what is surrounding the throne? for living creatures. What's carved on top of the Ark of the Covenant? These angelic beings. The author of Hebrews is inviting us to consider that this entire temple structure, tabernacle, then eventually became a temple when Solomon built it. And all Solomon did was he took the furniture of the temple and then just multiplied it. We don't have one candlestick, we're gonna have 10. Not, not one altar, we're gonna have 10 altars. And everything was bigger. And when you come into the Holy of Holies, you got the Ark of the Covenant, but you got these massive carved angelic structures on either side of it. It was the tabernacle, but just massive on a bigger scale. And the author of Hebrews is saying that thing that's standing in Jerusalem for this early church was nothing more of a shadow of the real thing in heaven and guess who the high priest in heaven is ministering and offering gifts and sacrifices before the throne. It's Jesus, the great high priest. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So in one way, and we're going to get more into this in chapter 9 next week, but the tabernacle, the entire structure had these deficiencies. They pointed to a greater tabernacle up but they also pointed forward to a better covenant because as i said the law was the covenant and the levites and the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the furniture was given in order to facilitate this covenant there was one problem there was a deficiency in the covenant not on god's side on man's side because man couldn't obey it. That's what he gets into in verse six. So we've talked about the priesthood and the tabernacle being a shadow of things above. Now we're gonna start talking about the tabernacle being a shadow of things down the road, a new better covenant. Go to verse six. It says, as it is, Christ has attained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, but it is acting on better promises. So everything that is the tabernacle structure spoke of a covenant, but it was really only a shadow of a better covenant that was coming down the road. And Christ is the mediator of this better covenant. First, if that now if that first covenant, everything we just looked at, the priesthood, the tabernacle, all that stuff, if it had been faultless, if it was perfect, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. Now, who's talking about a second covenant? He'll get to that in verse 10 but he finds fault with them when he says, see, that's interesting. Where's the fault in the first covenant? It's not with God and the system. It's with the people because they won't obey it. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed, no concern. I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the author is saying that according to scripture, the tabernacle system, the priest, the law, everything had severe deficiencies. These, def- these severe deficiencies, the deficiencies were not in God's design. They were in the people. Their hearts weren't regenerated. They were just obeying the rules and they had real issues with obeying these things. And so in a sense, the covenant never had, the old covenant never had the power to actually bring about the change that God wanted in the people, meaning that the entire covenant, the entire tabernacle structure was never meant to bring about that change. It was meant to be a shadow of the things above, but also to spur the people to look forward to a new covenant that would fulfill these things. I heard a pastor say one time, of all the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, there was one piece missing, a chair. See, in the true temple, We're told that Jesus, the High Priest, after He did His work, He sat down at the right hand of the Father because all of His work is done. There's no chair in the tabernacle because the work is never done. You have to keep coming back and offering more and more sacrifices because none of it is eternal. And the priest that you meet this week might die and get replaced by another priest next week. And when he goes in to offer sacrifice, he doesn't have to just offer sacrifice for you and the stupid things you've done during the week, but all the stupid things he's been doing and thinking during the week too. The system was never built in such a way that it was going to fulfill all of God's purposes. The whole point of the system was to point to something better. It was a model house. It was a blueprint. And you don't live in the model house or stare at your blueprint when when your final house is completely built. When the contractor comes to you and says, we're done. Move in. You don't say well bless God and keep paying your apartment rent every month staring at the blueprints and the pretty little model that he made for you you move into the new thing and this is the argument the author is making this entire model structure was only pointing to something better and that better thing is finally here it's the new covenant that the old covenant was speaking of in fact The Old Covenant includes a looking forward to the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. And that is what the author has started quoting back in verse 8. I paused just to kind of keep us together, but I want to read the rest of the chapter down to 13. And what he's doing from 8 all the way to 13 is he's only quoting Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. Let's pick it up in verse 10. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, man, brother, know the Lord for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God speaking through Jeremiah. The fact that you would begin to mention a second covenant means that the first one has already started to become obsolete and insufficient. That it can't fulfill what it really wants to do, therefore it is fading away. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already to vanish away. So, the author is saying that the old covenant with its priests and its temples is starting to fade away in lieu of a greater covenant that it was only ever a shadow of the things above and the things that would come down the line. And now it's here. And if it's here, why in the world would you spend your time going back to that old covenant when what you have is infinitely better than that why would you continue in the first century to plan your trip from rome with your family down to the temple to worship the passover in the same way that you did before when the entire point of the Passover was to point to the great lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world can't you see That those Israelites in Egypt when they killed the lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost was nothing more than a shadow and a type of talking about the day that the, the great lamb of God would be slain. And by putting your faith in him, you are in essence putting his blood over the doorpost of your own heart. That's what this is all about. So why would you ever go back when what we have now is infinitely better? And it's not just, it's not just better in, typological, in the typological sense, it's not just better because all the symbolism is better. It's better because the covenant itself is better. The new covenant says that God is no longer in a box, hidden behind some veil that can only be entered into once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. No, the law will be written on your heart and your mind. It will be hidden behind some veil. It will be in you. Everywhere you go. The groceries. You can't stop thinking about the Word of God written. It's literally written on your heart the Holy Spirit fills you in the same way that the Spirit of God filled Solomon's temple. That story we read about when they finally dedicated the temple and the Spirit of God fell down and His presence is there, that was nothing more than a shadow of the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit filled His people and there were tongues of fire, and we're the recipients of that. Guys, This new covenant is so better than the old covenant because the law is actually on our hearts and our minds. It goes with us. The Spirit of God is with us. But it's not just better because it's written on your hearts and minds, it's better because everyone has access to it. From the greatest to the least, nobody is left out. (coughs) It doesn't matter what you have done, if you put your faith in Him, you have access to this and it's better because you don't have to keep coming back to get your sins forgiven, Jesus wiped all of them away with his one sacrifice that doesn't have to be accomplished again. The entire older covenant was pointing in symbolic form to this greater covenant. And the author of Hebrews is saying it is here now, why would you ever go back? Now, this chapter, this entire book, in fact, really has one message. If I were gonna ask summarize the book of Hebrews, the summary is, don't go back. Don't go back to the old stuff. Well, what is the old stuff for this church? The old stuff is the law, the temple, the priesthood. All the symbolism wrapped around the furniture I just showed you and the festivals, all the memories you have of taking your kids on that long journey through the desert with everybody else and singing the Psalms of Ascent and finally getting to Jerusalem and walking up the steps and each step you're singing another song. All of that stuff, all of it was nothing more than a time of preparation to get you ready for the good thing that God has done, which is fulfilled all of that in the person of Jesus. But imagine, imagine the message to this church that has had years of growing up with, this is your entire identity, and now you're being told that you don't have to do any of that anymore. That all of that was nothing more than a preparation for the good thing that Christ has done. Can you, can you understand why it was so difficult to go back? Think about how many memories you have wrapped in things you've done in your life and how quickly you go back to those feelings and those memories rather than pressing on to this new identity Christ has given you now that you're saved. You think, about, think about that. I want you to think about what it was like before you were a believer. I want you to think about the songs that were on the radio when you were with your girlfriend when you were both unsaved back in those days. You, you know what I'm talking about? And how you're riding in the car now and that song comes on and it starts bringing back memories and you long for the old days. And you start reminiscing about the way things used to be before you had mortgage payments and college payments. Are you familiar, anybody? There is in us a sense that there are things that gave us stability and identity and comfort, even bad stuff. You were in this bad relationship, but at least you had some kind of identity in this bad relationship. And praise God, you're not in it anymore, but this new relationship you're in, you keep treating this guy like the old guy because that's all you know. Anybody? You grew up in a household where you had an overbearing mom or you had a a, a father who wasn't really a father and now you've married this guy, you've married this girl and every time you're talking with them and you're trying to work out this marriage, you can't help but see your dad or see your mom. You, You grew up telling yourself, I'm not gonna be like my parents and the moment you have kids, the first thing out of your mouth is something your dad would say or something your mom would say. See, here's the thing about this book. We're not Hebrews, there's no temple, and for us, there's no emotional tie to the symbolism of this furniture, but that doesn't mean that we aren't tied to symbolism in this culture and in our world. And so in the same way that the author of Hebrews is asking his audience to consider the rich symbolism of the furniture and this structure that pointed them in the wrong direction, I want us to consider today the kind of things that are in your life that are pointing you in the wrong direction. Some of it might not be good stuff, but some of it might be good stuff that you justify as good and worth following. But if you're honest with yourself, when you listen to God speak through this chapter, you can't help but admit it's pointing me in the wrong direction. I'm talking about brands that you chase with the money you make because you are so hard pressed to find some level of status in the circles that you travel in that unless you buy this brand, you're nothing. There's a symbol and an identity wrapped into that thing that's calling for your money and for your worship because you want it to give you an identity. There's clothing, there's celebrations, there's memories that hold meaning. There's things that we hang on our wall at home that are geared towards giving us some kind of identity. But if you're honest with yourself it's pulling you in the wrong direction. And here's what's tough about this because the moment traditionally, churches and pastors start talking about this, the first place we go is, well, well, okay, well, well, then you're telling me I can't have that thing, or I can't do this thing, or I can't drive that thing, or I can't live there, or I can't have this. No, that's not what, see, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to get saved? I've done everything. And he says, sell everything you have. And he went away, and we don't really hear anything after him. Nowhere else in scripture are we ever told that you have to sell everything in order to follow Jesus. That's not a prerequisite for salvation, except it was for that guy. Because here's the reality. For some of you, that stuff doesn't touch you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't own your heart. But for some of you, that's the only thing that gives you any sense of identity. So for you, you're going to have to liquidate. But that's not a blanket statement now. Everyone's got to go and live, live as paupers. And what, the, the point is that there is something that gives you memories and meaning and identity in the same way that that altar or that labor or that candlestick gave the people of God identity. And God is saying, guys, it's just a candlestick. In fact, it's just a candlestick that points to the seven spirits of God that are in heaven that are ablaze. Like, look to that, not the candlestick. And the candlestick is really just pointing to a better covenant that when God fills you with his presence, he's gonna fill you with light. And there's no darkness, no more darkness when you come to Jesus. And so this is what we're wrestling with today. This is the tension I wanna introduce to you. Because humans have a way of holding on to symbols so tightly that we feel like we can't live without them. And that was the struggle of the characters in Hebrews chapter eight. They're holding on to these symbols and they're convinced I have to go back to them because it's who I am. And if we jump forward 2000 years of history, we see we're still doing the same things. It's just not a tabernacle. We're holding on to a flag or a symbol or a style or an identity or a brand or how we grew up or where we're from or the color of your skin or how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter. There's no shortage of things that this world is saying, this is who you are. All the while God is saying, that's not who you are. You're my child. That's who you are. So the invitation today is the same invitation the author of Hebrews is giving to this church. Walk away from that trap. Because what you have inherited in Christ, your sins being forgiven, your belonging to God, his imprint of his very name and nature on your heart, is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer and any any identity or comfort you brought into this relationship. So here's the word of God today. Church, hold tightly to this new covenant and stop grabbing on to things that are pointing you in the wrong direction. Let's pray.